Thank you for that reading, Charlene. Let us pray. God, as we come before your scriptures today, may they be illumined for us. May we hear and see the acts of your Son so that they can bring us to faith, confession, and following. Amen. Do most of you know what happened in Hawaii yesterday? It's like the most famous story that I can think of of pressing the wrong button. Um, Rosie has a book that says don't press this button, which is the kids then push the button and bad things happen to this guy, Larry, over and over and over again. And I was thinking this guy's parents who accidentally pressed this button must have read him that book as a child because he pressed the button with the clear don't press on it. If you're unfamiliar with what happened in Hawaii yesterday, they got a notice on their phones similar to the Amber Alerts that we would get here that a ballistic missile was incoming um, to Hawaii. Now, smart people, or, or, or depending on what you think of Twitter, not smart people, but were able to look it up relatively quick, and word got out online that this is a false alarm. But the follow-up message that said, you're safe, there was no alarm, didn't come on people's phones till 45 minutes later. You imagine what that would be like and all the tension and fear and everything that would be going on. I'm personally surprised that there wasn't a riot or anything with that going on. There was a story I read of a guy who closed down his shop, went and bought a couple bottles of water, and then went home to be with his family. Which I, was, I, was, it's, I was thinking a couple bottles of water. You should have bought all of them. He's a kinder person than I am. Um, but that's sort of what happened. Now, the reason why I bring this story up is because I want to talk about the ways in which we sort of live with that as Christians. And so every bad sermon sort of starts with a vocab word, so let's just walk right into it. Um, the vocab word that I sort of have for us is, is eschatology. And it's a phrase that I think I've used unintentionally because it's a big word, and many people who didn't go to seminary don't know what it means, and that's no fault of their own. It's just a word we don't use very often. It's a word only used sort of in context of Christian theology and sort of the concerning of the last things or the last days or the last times. Now, many of us, when we think of eschatology, if we're Christians, may think of, of rapture and the Left Behind series and all these sort of things that are quickly capture our imagination. Um, this is the one I'm too young for it. Uh, Hal Lindsey, The Late Great Planet Earth, was one of those big books as well that sort of made money and sort of propagated that the last times are here and the reasons we know this, and they pair up normally the book of Revelation with a bunch of other stories and stuff to say that it is clearly the last times that we are living in. Which you can't really go wrong with because Jesus tells us that over and over again, so we are clearly living in the last times, but they, but they sort of use it as a puzzle. But what I talk about eschatology, and in this in our second Sunday as we walk through the book of Mark, is that Mark sort of presents Jesus as entering into this eschatological, this last time sort of battle with the powers of evil and with darkness. Mark portrays Jesus as one who sort of enters the conflict, which we talked about last week, 
that he enters into the waters of chaos that we sort of see in the book of Genesis in the beginning, that he enters into the darkness of what's there, and yet he comes out and hears the voice of the Father. And what happens after that is Jesus sort of goes on a path to war, a path to battle with these things. Now, I think it's always important for us to remember what the Apostle Paul said, that when we talk and use military imagery in the Bible, we're not talking about flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, demons and darkness, things that sort of distort God's humanity for us. Those things aren't often made of people, but they're, they're made of the spiritual and elemental forces that keep us in imprisoned and enslaved and addiction and deformed Slaves to anger, slaves to our delights. These are the type of things that Jesus comes to free us from. And so right after Jesus' baptism, he goes out into the wilderness, as we talked about last week, and he sort of meets with this adversary, and then he comes back proclaiming his message. Now, it's interesting to note that later in Mark's gospel, that Jesus will say, they'll ask, how are you doing this? How are you binding these who are uh, demons? And he says, and they sort of say, you must be a demon yourself to be able to control demons like this. And he says that he has gone into the house of the strong man and bound him. That Jesus is one who has bound up Satan and his works and is now sort of defeating them. So when we talk about Mark's eschatological vision for us, that's what we're talking about, that, that Jesus sort of enters into this. The reason that connects, I think, to, um, to that Hawaii story, and I hate to make light of, a, of a, a serious situation, is that for Christians, we live as ones who the alert has come to us. We live as ones who that the news of what God has done in Jesus Christ in overturning the powers and of darkness of evil has already shown up in our lives, on our phones, whatever you want to say, that it's news we already have. And while the rest of the world, this, the guy who went and bought bottles of water gets back to his shop, by the way, and he rents like bikes to tourists, and he said all these tourists were there like, where are you? We're trying to rent bikes. And he was like, in the world just went on. Um, and I think that describes some of, of the Christian tension, though, is we live with ones of this sort of eschatological news that Jesus has done this mighty thing in binding the strong man and beginning to defeat and extinguish the powers of darkness. We have that, and yet we live in a world where people are just trying to rent bikes again. Now, I don't mean that to make sense of the ways in which other people live, or to make light of the way in which other people live. It's just the ways in which we understand what God has done. And so what we see in this passage that we have for us today is how he calls people to be fishers of men, which we'll talk about, fishers of people. And then we'll see this sort of perfect day in Capernaum, too, this perfect Sabbath in Capernaum. And before we start, I want to read this, this sort of Bit of a long quote, but I put it up on the overhead from, from the commentator Joel Marcus about what this portion of Scripture meant to this community that was reading Mark's gospel for the first time. Whatever its genesis, Mark 16 through 45 contains an important message for Mark's communities who mem whose members perceive themselves to be undergoing a tribulation unparalleled since the world began. 
hated by all for the sake of Jesus' name and pushed to the very brink of extinction. The section gives them an image to counterpose to this picture of horror, a preview of what the world will look like when it has been transformed by the healing touch of Jesus. Jesus is portrayed here as the one who gives purpose to human existence, who integrate lives but have been physically and psychologically shattered, and who enables the living dead to re-enter the world from which they have been banished. In short, as the one who restores life to its God's given wholeness and peace, its shalom. Now the Markian community is harried and hated by all, but will not always be so. Soon Jesus will return and turn this hell on earth into a realm of life, integrity, and joyful lucidity. The tableau of, of healing miracles in chapter 1 thus provides Mark's readers with a vision to hold on through, uh, throughout the terror of the present, an anticipation of the redeemed world that will materialize through Jesus' power when God cuts the terror short and reclaims the universe for himself. It's the eschatology we speak of when we talk of the book of Mark. And that, that word, I think, will come up more often as we go through the book of Mark. Now, one of the things we talked about last week that I want to make clear is that many of us live with this beautiful mosaic of who Jesus is. And that beautiful mosaic is made up of, of hymns. It's made up of creeds. It's made up of, of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and what Paul says to us about Jesus and what the book of Revelation tells us about Jesus. And we have this sort of Jesus that we worship that makes up this immaculate stained glass window. It's important and it's beautiful and it draws us up to worship. But in the midst of that, we've become sort of bad readers of seeing the glass for what it is. And so for the next 12 weeks, or now we have a left, from now until Easter, we're going to sort of sit with the Gospel of Mark to see just one piece that makes up our beautiful mosaic of who Jesus is. To sort of, sort of stay with one of the stories to sort of capture each element of it. Because the way that Mark sets up this story is different, and it teaches us different things. For instance, Matthew and Luke both have sort of sermons start the ministry of Jesus. Whereas John has a miracle, the wedding feast at Cana. Those of you who remember who we didn't have wine for communion last Sunday, remember that we prayed for the wedding feast at, that, at Cana. We had grape juice, we had no wine. Um, that, that Mark sets up miracles to sort of drive that story forward, or John does. And Mark sets up sort of casting out of demons. Many of us, when we think about who Jesus is, we see sermons, we see teachings, we think this. But as one who enters into this battle to push out darkness in the world is one that doesn't show up on our mosaic very well. And so that's why we're sort of going through the gospel of Mark the way we are. And so last week I, I did mention that we have sort of audio for you to listen to if you want to listen to the whole Gospel of Mark without interruption, or I've, I've sort of have a PDF or Word document, and I can print it off for you, of it without any headings or without any verse or chapter formats, to give you a chance to sort of read the Gospel of Mark almost like a novel, to sort of just sit down and take time with it, and to sort of have it sort of wash over you. But this morning's scene starts with the disciples. 
Now, the disciples, I think, have this interesting ways in which most of the time, as pastors, we use them as stories of what not to be or what not to do. A well-known pastor uh, talks about how when Peter gets out of water to walk on the boat and he begins to think, saying, he said, I want my life with Jesus to be running on the water and to never sink or lose faith. And I can't help but hear all these stories we tell about how the disciples got it all wrong and how they're slow and how they're stupid as sort of missing the point. Because what I think is most clear about the disciples is that they're us. They're our stand-in in the story. And their errors are likely to be our errors, and then their confusion in trying to figure out who Jesus is likely to be our confusion in, in trying to figure out Jesus and the ways in which they try to name him and keep him safe. Or, or when, they go to, when Peter goes to find him, when he's out praying, Peter goes to hunt him, is what the Greek says. We, when we can't see Jesus, we get, we get scared and we go and hunt to go find him. We can't trust that he's still there is sort of Peter's problem. That their errors are our errors. And so while they sort of live as cautionary tales for us, they only live as cautionary tales for us because they resemble us so well. And I think that's important for us to remember that. Now, if you watch a fair amount of TV or read a fair amount of books or, or see movies, there are characters whose, whose goal it is to explain things, get the, somebody else to explain things to you. My favorite example of this is The West Wing, in which there is a character at the start of the show, Donna Moss, and Donna Moss's job for the first you know, three or four seasons, she gets more roles as it goes through, is to ask questions that make somebody else explain what's going on. And so Donna Moss, they, the Josh Lyme and her boss will be like, okay, so we need to get this done because there is going to be a filibuster. And Donna goes, okay, what's a filibuster? Donna is there for us because many of us don't want to go to Wikipedia or an encyclopedia and look up constitutional law while we're watching a TV show. Donna asks questions so that we can get the answers without having to do that. It's even more obvious in, in sort of sci-fi films because when somebody says, okay, what does it mean to quantum leap three universes away? We don't even have access to that information. So that person asking that is very making clear to us something that we don't know. My point is the disciples in Mark and the other gospels function the same way. Jesus, they'll ask them, why do you teach in parables? People don't understand them. And so what Jesus does is explains to them why he teaches in parables and explains the parable. That's not because they're dense. It's because Mark's assuming that we're kind of dense and so that we're going to ask the same question. Why is this guy we're reading about continually talking in parables? And Jesus answers that question for us. So the disciples, in many ways, are a stand-in for us, which I think should give us more grace than not. And of course, in this story, we should have more grace for them at all because Jesus at this moment says to them, come and follow me, and they leave their nets and they follow. Now, if we think about um, you're a, a third century lawyer and your dad wants you to grow up to be a lawyer and you want to be a poet, that doesn't turn out well normally. Um, that's leaving behind the family trade. You can almost guarantee that these sons of these fishermen had been doing this longer than three or four generations. This was their family's trade, most likely for a hundred years. 
This is what they did. And a guy walks by and says, come and follow me. And they get up and follow. We should have way more grace for these disciples because most of us would be like, well, what do you do? Why would I leave this behind? This has fed my family for 100 years. Where are we going? What are we doing? Two, just leave with that sort of news. Now, the first two, um, they might come from a little bit of a lower sort of stratosphere, but the second two, they have hired hands, which means they probably weren't hurting for cash. They, too, also go and follow Jesus. Now, it's interesting at this time that people more likely chose their rabbis than the rabbis chose them. So Jesus sort of sets their eyes on them and calls them out in the same way that he does with us with faith. We don't pick Jesus as much as Jesus picks us. And the phrase that we see as come and follow me is actually probably more accurately translated, come after me. Come after me which teaches us a little bit about where Jesus is going, that that this community of people he's called are going to come after him. This church reading this gospel comes after Jesus. Come after me. It also captures a little bit of what it meant at this time to be a good student of a rabbi. They would say would be to be covered in the rabbi's dust. So you would follow them and get covered in their dust. Come after me and learn my ways. Learn how I go throughout the world. So these disciples sort of abandon their nets, and they go with them. And Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of people's souls. I will make you people who who fish for something else. Now, I know I've made this observation before, but in, in the living... Um, Bible translation hit it, is that they were commercial fishermen and that they left nets. Now, a large percentage of our fishing, the type of fishing I do, is based upon deception. I tie a little fly that looks like a real fly to a very thin line that the fish can't see so that the fish will strike it and I will bring it in to my joy and feel like I didn't lose a whole day doing nothing, which isn't the worst either. But most of our fishing is based off of this deception. Now, now some people have tried this with the gospel of well. If, if you've ever seen the million-dollar bill that people leave out in places where it's like, oh, you look at it, and then it says, it's not a million dollars, but you get heaven with Jesus. Sort of fishing based on deception. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about these massive sort of dragnets that they would put into the water and that would gather up lots of fish, and pull them into the boat. This is at the end of John's gospel where they struggle to pull in the fish that they've gotten. This isn't fishing based off of deception. This is more like collecting. This is more like gathering up. This is more like pulling something in. It changes the meaning of this passage quite a bit. And when Jesus says that he'll make them fishers of men at the time, that that might have meant that he was making them teachers as well. But the two other emphases that Jews would have gotten is that they were going to pluck people out of the net of Satan and bring them into the net and care of God. That they were going to be ones who took people out of one realm, the realm of darkness, 
the realm of confusion, the realm of sort of demons, and put them into the safety and care of God. It's a much different image when we think about it that way. And the other one that they would have picked up too is that to be fishers of men was to be recruited into God's sort of eschatological army, eschatology army, for the end times, to sort of be brought into this thing to also join the battle with the power of darkness, against the powers of darkness. So you see the disciples later at Jesus' command also casting out demons. And so these fishers of men become something more through Jesus. But after that scene, they end up in Capernaum. And Capernaum, I want to say, is sort of this perfect Sabbath. Now, all the images that might come to your mind for a perfect Sabbath, I think, are good. But for a first-century Jew, or for any Jew, a perfect Sabbath has something to do with God sort of fully embodying that time. A perfect Sabbath would be more like heaven than anything else. And so one, one scholar actually says that this first chapter of Mark is what could be called the honeymoon period. Up until this point, they don't really have any human opposition, The disciples, by the way, don't know about the desert, and they don't know about the baptism, and so they're following this Jesus. And what Jesus does is he goes into the synagogue, this place on a Sabbath, of sacred space and of sacred time. And what he does is he teaches there, and they say that he is one who teaches with authority. What did the Living Bible say? uh, uh, He doesn't quote other people. It's convicting news for me. Um, uh, but what, what the Greek word for authority means there is that he teaches with the original content. He teaches as the author. Well, Christians, I think, and for Defiance Church, what it would mean for us to, to sort of speak with authority again, I think is an important message. But what they're also unintentionally or intentionally calling out about Jesus is that he's one who speaks as if he was writing this thing himself or if he had written it. Which, of course, is going to become more clear that, that perhaps that's might tr- more true as we go throughout the story. But he teaches as the author. He teaches as one who has access to all this content. So he doesn't need to pull off quotes from other people because he seems to be so at home in it that he doesn't need to do that. That's what Jesus has when they say he teaches with authority. And while he's doing this, an unclean spirit, and it said demon in the New Living, but the the Greek for this one is more unclean spirit, cries out. And the unclean spirit cries out. um, Sorry. Uh, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This evil, unclean spirit is the one that cries that out. Jesus, in the Greek, tells him to shut up if you read it. It says, muzzle yourself would be a more correct. Uh, uh, Jennifer works with dogs, so you know muzzle yourself pretty well. Um, but essentially, he tells him to shut up, which I think has to do with even demons, when they speak the truth, shouldn't be speaking that much at all. But what they do is what demons do, which other people can't do in the Gospel of Mark until the crucifixion, is they can see that Jesus is the most holy one of God. The only people who can do that in the Gospel of Mark are sort of the, the one at the cross, um, the, the Roman soldier at the cross, and then it's a confession that becomes more as clear as the resurrection sort of becomes a reality. 
But the Gospel of Mark sort of shields that knowledge from humans, and the only people that seem to know it are these who exist in sort of the supernatural realm. There's another way of reading the question that they're sort of asking, you're made of the same stuff as us. Why is that? You seem to be sort of have more content than the rest of them, is what this demon is asking. And so this this demon names who Jesus is, and Jesus sort of tells him to shut up and get out. And the man shrieks, and the demon comes out of him. We spend a lot of our life trying to avoid uncleanliness. Most of us don't willingly walk into unclean situations. This man, during his life, lived in a spirit of uncleanliness. And what Jesus does is he frees him from that. We talk about authenticity a lot today. What does it mean to be an authentic person? What does it mean to be ourselves? Jesus is one who makes that possible for the most distraught, and disformed in the world by healing them. Now, we may not live with demons in the same way, although I think we do, if you, if you wanted to talk about that, but we live with deformed selves. We live with understandings of ourselves as unclean. We live as understandings of other people as unclean. And what's shocking about Jesus as you go through the gospel is he continually touches and heals and sits with these people with no fear of contaminating himself, and only with the goal of freeing them to be authentically themselves again, restoring them. And even more importantly in the Gospel of Mark, that that authentic lives are made and built sort of following Jesus, being with Jesus on the way, that that's where we find who we are called to be. And so after this scene, after this sort of this time in which he casts out demons to sort of restore the synagogue to its, its place, is that he goes to, to the house of Simon, and he heals his mother. Jesus sees that, that Simon's mom is sick, and he's brought there for that. And he takes her hand, and he lifts her up, and she's better. Now, there's all sorts of connotations and lifts up that reminds us of the resurrection that Jesus is mirroring, that he's raised, and as he raises people, they're healed. He grabs her hands and raises her up, and that's the same power that's going to raise him from the grave. It's a glorious scene. And not only that, Jesus at this moment, on this one day in Capernaum, has healed a man with a demon and a woman struggling with sickness. He does both. Now, in this time, it wouldn't be rare to have stories of charismatic healers that would, would go and raise, their, um, raise people up and heal them to some degree. But almost never would a male charismatic teacher touch a woman and heal her. There's no recorded instance of that. And there's, there's this joke, and it's a horrible joke, that they say, well, Jesus picks her up and raises her so that they can eat dinner. It says that she goes and she cooks and she serves for him. And we think, well, that's, that seems like, you know, an awkward thing. Like, now she's better, now she makes food. The Greek word, though, used for what, what she does after she's healed is the same one that the angels, is used for the angels who minister to Jesus in the desert. She becomes as one like an angel who ministers to Jesus and his band of followers. 
And not only that, she also has this, this, this way in which she becomes um, a, a paradigm of what the gospel is like. Jesus later, when he tells his disciples, who's the greatest is the one, same Greek word, who serves. The gospels in the Bible write a lot about men, and it's a common complaint, but almost none of them are portrayed that well. Whereas the women generally come off a lot better. Should be, should be something we ponder for a while, at least as men, not too long. Um, but um, women in Mark's gospel seem to have an, an attentiveness to who Jesus is, almost a little bit better than his disciples. Peter has that grand confession in eight. But there's a woman at the cross, there's a woman who anoints him. The women go to the tomb, the disciples don't. The women in, in Mark's gospel seem to have this attentiveness to who Jesus is. It's not just women. Blind men seem to have an attentiveness, Bartimaeus. Those who he heals, those who come from a lower place in life, and in the first century, this is where women were placed, seem to almost fare better with who Jesus is. It's not a shock that in the first four centuries, most of the church growth is with, with women and slaves. People who find themselves powerless are attracted to Jesus. People whose, whose humanity has been deformed fall into Jesus. They might get it better than we do. I think it's a good question for us to ask ourselves today. Who do we see that way, and how do they perceive Jesus? And, and also, how do we begin to, as most of us, able-bodied and fine, begin to begin to learn from those people as they follow Jesus? What does it mean to see that more clearly? And so he raises up Peter, Simon's mom, and at this house, all the people begin to show up after the Sabbath. And he heals and casts out demons. It's a picture of new creation. It's a picture of what God has done in Jesus to restore the world. The gospel will go on. Jesus goes out to pray. And when he goes out to pray, he, um, he says that it's time for me to go out to the other parts of the world and to preach and to cast out demons as sort of the two things that he says he has to do. The story can't stay in this little perfect spot. But for one day in Capernaum, the disciples, these recently called ones, see what the fullness of God's creation can look like. Demons are cast out, and the unclean are restored. Sickness is healed. People are raised up. Those in the powerless positions begin to serve, to minister to the one who is God. And they begin to see how the world can change. And so this scene, these, these two scenes, call us to, to speak with authority again, to begin to see our lives as a world at the turning of age, that Corinthians reading we read, while hard, says that this world is passing away. These Christians live as ones who know that the way things are, and when I say the way things are, I mean the way that we are slaves, that we are addicted, the way that we live deformed, is supposed to be passing away. So that the new thing, what God is going to show us and do through Jesus Christ and Mark's gospel can take root in the world and we can follow him into, cruci- or into resurrection and into new life.
Let us pray. God, for us here, you have called us. While like the disciples, we haven't left house and home and career, we see ourselves as learners of you. Teach us to see through the lives of the ones he called our own heirs, our own confusion, our own struggles with who your son is when he comes amongst us. And in the same way, as we sit and hear of the one day in Capernaum, may we find ourselves caught up in the vision of your new creation, of a day of rest, of a day of healing, day of casting out which def- that which deforms so that we can be freely brought into life with you. Amen. Now is the time in which we come together and we remember Jesus through a meal. That we took the meal that on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my